you know, in this business, if you start taking people, you start ripping through them, you start beating people, it comes to a point where nobody wants to do business with you. I mean, I got a family, I got a wife, I got kids, I got to support them. And I couldn't support them unless that word of cooperation came up. Sure, Lawrence Taylor, WrestleMania, I cooperated. Kimo, Japan, I cooperated. Kitaho, I cooperated. Kashimikov, five-time gold medalist from Russia, I cooperated. But you know something? Bam Bam Bigelow is sick and tired of cooperating. Bam Bam Bigelow, he don't cooperate no more. He wants it, he takes it. Shane Douglas, this is my belt. You want my belt? The only way you're gonna get it, I'm not doing no damn job. I'm not getting beat, doing no more favors. I'm not cooperating, no damn more. You want this belt? This is Bam Bam Bigelow's belt. This is my possession. And the only way you can get it is if you can kick my ass and pin me in the ring because this belt ain't going nowhere. This week on Franchise with Shane Douglas, we dig deep into the relationship between Shane Douglas and his best friend in the world, Bam Bam Bigelow. We'll go through the legacy, we'll go through the career, and we'll go through all the stories that you want to hear right here on Franchise with Shane Douglas. You've been in sports entertainment hell, a place devoid of character development, intelligent storylines, and gripping angles. We'll never fear franchisees because you're about to be <laughs> franchise. Welcome to Franchise with Shane Douglas. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to where you get your ass franchised. It's Franchised with Shane Douglas, and I've got the man, the myth, the legend right now with us. Shane Douglas, how are you today? As you've been finding out all day, just hectic on the run, getting a ton of shit done, but... It's all for the kids, so for me, it's as hectic and tiresome as it is. It's a labor of love. I, I, everybody knows. I mean, I, I, other than being a father, there's nothing else in the world that matters to me. But it does get hectic on the schedule at times. Well, you are always doing something for your kids. And, and you know what? I think that's uh, pretty commendable. You know, there's a lot of people who don't maybe spend as much time with their kids as they should, but not Shane Douglas. Oh, dude, you and I are both fathers. Is there anything else in the universe You'd rather be doing than spending time with your kid? No, there really isn't. And I've got two. I've got the best of both worlds. I got a 19 year old and I got a one year old. <laughs> wow. I thought mine, mine are five years apart. I thought I had a good, good widespread. No, <laughs> 19 years on this one. Yep. I waited 19 years. As soon as I was done, I was like, okay, let's start this game again. That's, that's called pacing yourself. <laughs> right. I guess that's what it's called. <laughs> So uh, we are a day late and a dollar short right now. It's looking like this episode is actually going to post on Wednesday instead of Tuesday because it is Tuesday night right now, and I'm just now recording with you. Yeah, we again the hectic schedule, but uh, you know, if, if, if your child rearing is any uh, any indi- indi- indicator, then we've got about 18 years before we're late to the next one. <laughs> That's true. So, did you get a chance to watch any wrestling? Since wrestling is on TV 
every single day somewhere now. Did you catch any wrestling this week? Did you watch I NWA did. Power? I did. I, I watched NWA. I watched parts of the uh, WWE <coughs> draft. Yeah, so I, I, I caught, let's put it this way, I caught more than my fair share and more than any human being should have to endure in a, in a particular week. But yeah, I, 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 I caught, I caught, no, I, actually, no, I caught zero professional wrestling. I saw a whole bunch of other stuff pretending to be, but I didn't see I didn't see any professional wrestling this week at all. Okay, well let let's pace ourselves now. So we've got a lot to break down here. First, I'd like to see what you think of NWA Power. Well, you know, I, I went in with high expectations, and maybe that was the wrong thing because everyone was telling me, you know, it looks like Tenth and Techwood, you know, and and I turned it on, and it did. You know, the, the appearance of it was Tenth and Techwood. Uh, that that was, by the way, the address of the old TBS studio where we recorded uh, the Superstation shows, right? Uh, the six oh five shows. You know, the look of it, I give them a, give them an A on. You know, because they replicated that look pretty closely. The, the audience was uh, into it, but as you know, like my problem is is, is like watching the product in the ring. You know, so. All the rest of it is esoteric to me. It's like, you know, you can have a beautiful car, spit shined, armor all the, the tires and all the, the upholstery, and it looks fantastic. But if the engine doesn't, if you got, you know, if you got a little four cylinder, you know, lawnmower engine in it, it, it's not quite what it appears to be. For me, the in ring product just didn't hold, you know, for me, just didn't hold me. And, and, and we can dissect that as we go along. Well, a question that I have is, did anything stand out to you? Because, you know, I have, <laughs> I'm really, really behind one of their stars. And I'm just curious if maybe he stuck out to you. Well, the, uh, you know, I don't want to get into like the, any particular names, but the, I thought, uh, I saw some people that uh, I, I thought delivered decent promos. I, I won't say great yet because, like, to me, great's like a five star rating. You know, if you, if you, you know, to get a five star rating, you got to be impeccable. But clearly, they got some guys that can deliver. Can I name promo. one of them and see what you think? What about? Yeah. What about Eli Drake? Yeah, he, he's the, he's the person I'm thinking of. Yes. Uh, you know, he had good pauses. You know, good delivery, good voice inflection. When he looked into the camera, you felt like you were believing what he was saying. What I didn't like about not just his promo, but the entire show was like the the tendency to sort of go towards the comedic. Chris Candido and I used to go round and round about this because Chris, you know, Chris called comedy ha-ha. You know, so we'll go out there, we'll do a little ha-ha. You know, me, I always like going for that stone-cold heat, you know, and, 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 and I believe Chris Candido, you know, had that in spades had he ever had the, uh, the faith in himself to do that. But that's what, it, what Chris enjoyed. Chris entertained himself doing that. You know, each of those promos, Eli's are separate. But the other promos on the show sort of tended to like almost like it was working toward a punchline, right? And you know, and to me that eh, I don't want to see somebody working toward a punchline because it tells me that they're like they do their matches. They're they're trying to recall or remember a line or a phrase or maybe they're being told to do that. I don't know how, how the NWA and, and Billy Corgan sets it up, but I want somebody to look into that camera and convince me with their words, with their look, with whatever else that goes into that, with whatever it is they're saying. I want them to convince me that they are going to deliver or sure as hell try whatever it is they're telling me, they're going to, whatever good it is they're trying to sell me. So in that front, I think, like Dave Marquez, I, I like Dave, good guy, great guy, 
but he always had that like sort of slight grin on his face, sort of like there's a there's a pun here coming and I know it's coming. I don't know. Like to me, it just it fell short in that front. But I, I, I do agree that Eli Drake delivered a, a damn good promo. Yeah, I'm a huge Eli Drake fan. I'm, I'm really hoping that he goes somewhere because I think that he could be a huge star. But I, I love Billy Corgan. I think that it's great what he's doing, and maybe it's not the best product yet, but I, I have high hopes for them. Well, look, I mean, there were several positives, right? But, I mean, we talked about the appearance, the, uh, the aesthetics of it. Clearly they had that. Jim Cornette, you know, his insanity and his political views aside, best <laughs> commentator right now on television. Well, I can't even say TV, but in, 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 in sports entertainment. He's got a damn good um, podcast, too, man. Oh, incredible, right? I mean, the thing about Jim that amazes me is, like, I, I know the, like, you know, we all live our lives, right? We all remember things, you know, whichever way we remember them. Jim can tell you that it was 8.13 p.m. on August 7th, 1984, that the Midnight Express won or lost the match or whatever. And that, to me, that kind of, like, I don't know if he's like an idiot savant, you know, like sort of like a rain man or whatever, but how somebody remembers with that specificity astounds me because I can't remember shit from last week. You know, <laughs> Dominic Venucci Dominic Venucci will tell a story, and, and, you know, we're on the road driving this past weekend, and he said, you know, February 1st, 1951 was my first day in Montreal, and then he paused and he said it was a Friday. And I stopped him. I said, come on. That last part you fucking just, you're, you're, you're just made up, right? He looked at me like, because you know, one thing with Dominic, you, you accuse him of lying or not telling the truth on something, and he gets very, very angry about that. So he looked at me like I was nuts. And I said, I don't mean like you're, you're like lying to me for a reason, but like you made the Friday part up, right? He goes, no, it was a Friday. I said, how the hell do you remember what day of the week it was 70 fucking years ago? <laughs> you know, but that's how Cornette is. Cornette's like an idiot savant with this stuff. Like, he can remember points. Me, I can remember the overarching themes of stories. I couldn't tell you what day of the week it was. I couldn't tell you what episode. Like, Cornette could tell you it was the, the 51st week of the year, and it was the 317th episode of the show, and, you know, who was sitting in the front row and what color they were wearing. Just <laughs> mind-boggling. He's a wrestling historian, that's for sure. Walking fucking encyclopedia, but doesn't know shit about politics, but he sure as hell knows wrestling. Ah, we won't get into politics, because I, I like Jim's politics. But, (laughs) (laughs) nevertheless, nevertheless, we got to talk about the draft. Now, you you, kind of hinted toward the fact that you weren't a fan of the draft. Yeah, we have to, because I got a really good idea I want to share with you. Okay, God almighty. I'd rather get a root canal right now, but let's get into it. Well, I mean, we could just just say it sucked. We don't have to get into it, because really, (laughs) when it comes down to it, the draft always over promises and under delivers and every time i get excited just the 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 wrestling fan in me just wants to jump up and down like we're gonna have a draft and then we have the draft and it's lackluster at best and that's exactly what we got here maybe more so than ever before because every single well i'm not gonna say every single but 96 percent of all the draft picks didn't even change shows. They've been on SmackDown or they've been on Raw or the title. Yeah. I mean, like Brock Lesnar was picked for SmackDown. Well, no shit. He just won the world title. Of course, he's picked for SmackDown yeah. because that title's on SmackDown. It was like the most predictable draft ever, but it inspired, I think, what is the greatest idea 
ever. Well, actually, I think I've got some better ones hidden away, but this one is really exceptional, and I want to share it with you and the listeners of Franchise to see what you think. Okay, I'm I'm game. Let's let's go. It's better than talking about the the WWE draft, so let's do it. (laughs) Okay, so so here's the idea, right? And, And to tell you the idea for the draft, I have to go back a little bit in my idea to show you the structure, and the structure is the WWE picks... 15 territories or 15 companies, 15 companies from around the country, and they make them certified WWE independent wrestling companies. So they certify companies, right? So they've got this sea of companies that are all over that people can go. Now, anytime that they hire somebody new and they're like, this guy's going to go to NXT before he goes to NXT, you send him through one of those one of those companies or maybe a couple of those companies and you get him over on, on the smaller leagues. NXT has their stars. So now you have three tiers. You have the certified independence, you've got the NXT brand and you've got SmackDown and raw. So when it becomes draft time now, before I get into the draft, if you see the the territories would help promote shows in their towns, they would help groom talent. They would also get talent that WWE is not using so that they don't get any ring rust. It would be a great program. So now when we're, when it's draft time, SmackDown and raw, they do trades between each other. But when they, when they actually pick their draft picks, they come from NXT you take six NXT stars for Raw, six NXT stars for SmackDown, and so it's an actual draft. Then NXT does a draft, and when NXT does a draft, they take 12 people from the certified locations around the country to join NXT. So then it's more like a sport. What do you think? Well, look, anything's better than what they did, right? Uh, the problem that you know, I'm just being a realist here, the problem with your idea is that Vince McMahon ain't never going to put anybody else over. He's never going to give a territory or a smaller promotion the rub. Well, he's doing what it with Evolve. Do is, he's doing it with Evolve right now. Yeah, but like, to what degree? I, you know, it, he's it, putting it, them on the network. Yeah, but to go out there and say I'm going to pick out 15 promotions, a you're running the issue of you know would those promotions be able to deliver the products on time? Uh, would it necessitate any assets from Vince or capital from Vince to, to float them? The idea on, on, in a show is it's a good one that it would it would give them as having the storefront window on the young talent that's out there today. But you know Vince, I mean if you've been paying attention to his shows and his pay per views lately seems to have lost its fucking mind like with the draft and we we can come back to to what we were talking about with with your idea with the draft the first thing you see with this draft is a list of rules that are so convoluted and so difficult to follow that at at a certain point i'm sure the fans because i know i did it i don't give a shit what the hell that box says because it's so damn confusing Who's going to sit there and say, okay, well, this one gets two and that one gets three. And, and if this and that and the other thing and the full moon is full, then this happens or that happens. It was way, way, way too, too convoluted and too difficult to understand to really give a damn about. Then you go into this, they've come out. The premise from the start to me is flawed because Vince has told you for 30 plus years, it's fake or a show. It's just entertainment. But now we're going to have a, a, a draft sort of like Major League Baseball or the NFL, 
you know, pulling out the top drafts in, in, from college, who's going to go first, who's going to go second, who's available, who do the Steelers need, are they going to trade up or down, you know, because it's a legitimate sport. Now Vince has beaten you over the head with this for 30 years. I love when Vince tries to then make a foray into somehow legitimizing, like, for instance, Chris Jericho and uh, Brock Lesnar got into a fight in the dressing room, or you, you can't have it both ways you can't beat the fans over the head with it's a show it's a show it's a show now this particular part of the show ain't a show and that's to me what the draft was attempting to do trying to replicate i guess because the first early in their run on fog we're gonna look like the nfl drafting and all the excitement that you see and the pageantry that the nfl and college football is built into that the wwe don't have that and they're never going to have that because they've beaten you over the head with fake, fake, fake for 30 years. And so it's like you're pushing the pool, trying to be something that you're not, that you've said you're not, you've screamed you're not, you've bellowed you're not for 30 plus years. And now you're trying to give it some sort of legitimacy, like you said. Yeah, I, I didn't pay attention as in-depth as you did, as, you know, Brock has already won that belt, and this one is already with this one, this show or that show. And, you know, that's way deeper than I got into it. You you picked it out. Do you think the, the, the average fan out there didn't pick that out? Because it seems to me that with the Internet today, the fans are a lot savvier than they've ever been. You know, it's pretty clear that if you picked it out, I think the fans are picking it out. So aside from the the... The, the convolutedness of the the rules of the draft, and then the the knowledge base of the fan base, and the fact that you've screamed "we're a show, we're a show, we're a show," or "fake, fake, fake" for thirty years. What exactly were they trying to accomplish with that? Well, I, I mean, usually it's but it's just to shake up the roster so there's new matchups. This time we've got the same people on the same shows, and I, I thought it was really stupid that draft picks had to do with relationships. Like Charlotte, yeah. our Charlotte and Andrade have to be on the same show. Corey Graves and Carmella have to be on the same show, so we had to split up our truth and Carmella. That's the most entertaining thing that either one of them have ever done in the WWE, and we split it up. Right. It, I mean, it's just it's crazy what they did with the draft because it was just so lackluster, and it, you need surprises. And plus, like you said, the NFL, the NBA, the, the MLB, they're all picking from college. They're not picking from, like, it's not like you draft all the players to different teams every couple seasons. You pick from college. Right. That's why they should be picking from NXT. And then when NXT gets rated every year with the draft, they should be picking from the independents and make it really exciting. I think that would I think it would change the whole draft and it would make wrestling more like a sport, for sure. Well, it clearly it'd be an improvement, right? It's, to me, you know, and again, you you've gone into it far deeper than I could because I, you know, it's it's painful for me to watch that stuff, but in, in looking at it from the perspectives that you've offered here, just on the outside looking in, it seems to me that this was a show done up just to give Fox something instead of giving them something memorable. And the other part of this to me is just taking a step back. What separates Raw from SmackDown other than the day of the week? You know, it's not like you have, like, for instance, in Major League Baseball, the American League can pinch hit, National League can't. You know, so there's differences in the sports in the actual rules for each one. And it seems to me like SmackDown is sort of like, not sort of, exactly like Raw. It's just a different day of the week. 
You know, they referred to it as the A-Show this week. This week they referred to SmackDown as the A-Show. That's the first time that I've heard that happen. Well, because they're, you know, they're just, you got a $2 billion contract with a, with a monster network out there called Fox and, you know, trying to put it through its paces to make Fox believe they're getting something handed to them that they're really not. You know, it's sort of like, hey, I'm going to sell you this. There's a great vehicle outside of my outside of the building right now. I'll sell it to you for a really good price. Uh, you're going to be astounded when you see that vehicle. And then you go outside and the vehicle's an old jalopy sitting there, right? It's the same thing, you know. <laughs> like, to me, I, I don't know. It, it just seems, to me, if you're going to do a draft, it, that that's giving the intent, giving the flavor that you're getting ready to bring in some really key talent, uh, you know, the key athletes that are going to really change things up. You know, like that's what do you think in the in the NFL draft every year? Who goes number one? You know, part of it is who's going to be number one, but the biggest part of it's going to be is that player going to be able to make the same impact at the at, at the professional level that he did in college? And so, holy shit, Pittsburgh Steelers drafting number one got a new quarterback. What happens to Roethlisberger? There's so many different backstories that go to it. And like you said, now they're just, you know, saying, okay, well, you know, we're, we're going to change, you know, two or 3% of the rosters back and forth. What, you know, what's the purpose other than trying to give Fox the belief that they're getting something that they're not really getting. I can agree with that. And, uh, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me. You say like, you can't even stomach to watch, some of the stuff, you know, I'm still watching impact. Like I can't get enough of everything. I watch as much as I can. I feel like I'm not watching enough. And you're like, man, I can't watch any of this stuff. I'm, I'm glad that I'm not there yet. It's, I see stuff on every, you know, on all the shows that I, you know, that stimulates that, that mark in me. And, but it's not enough. Like, you know, it's like a figure skater that's, you know, won the gold medal. When you go out and you sit there and you watch somebody do something and they fall on their ass, but they're trying really, really hard and they're really, really athletic and can really, really do stuff that maybe your generation couldn't, but they're forgetting that, you know, the pageantry of figure skating and, and that sort of thing. To me, wrestling, professional uh, sports entertainment has lost its pageantry, its storytelling. What attracted me to watching wrestling when I was six years old, and again, whenever I was 13 years old, didn't have much to do. It had something to do, but didn't have much to do with this one was more athletic than that one, or this one could do more flips than the other one. It, to me, it was the, the, the characters, the, the, the stories that were being told, you know, like I always, you know, and I use this all the time. So for the fans that have heard this a million times from me, you know, when Zabisco finally, after nearly two years of projecting that he was going to turn on Bruno, and to the point that you got to the, to believing that it's never going to happen, they're just fucking with you. And then he finally hit Bruno with that chair. It was like an oh my fucking god moment. What just happened? You know, when's the last time you saw an oh my fucking god moment in sports entertainment? I'm sure I could come up with one, but we we totally don't have time for that awkward pause that I would do trying to figure it out. <laughs> I'm I'm sure there's one, but it's, it's you see what I'm saying. It's before it happened with regularity. You know, you go back and you look at the booking that you know those great bookers. You know the way they used to do it and the performers. Like I was talking to a a film production company uh, yesterday, and I told them, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. The fans that have followed me know what I mean when I say this. I have such a respect for the guys that I worked with and learned from and the guys who are good at what we do. Because you go back and you watch a Harley race match 
and it is goddamned eloquent when you see what he's doing. And then you add into that that he's on his 72nd day on the road and has wrestled 84 times in those 72 days. And, you know, and you put all that into it, and you see what he's still able to do in the ring. It is mesmerizing, you know, and that to me is what I'm missing from wrestling. I don't want to sound overly critical. I am slack-jawed at the athleticism of the kids, how hard they're working. My God, they're, <laughs> they're, they're moving mountains with their effort. But it's just there's nothing that separates this first match from the next match from the last match. It's all sort of the same stuff over and over and over again and that's what drives me crazy well speaking of moving mountains today we are talking about a mountain of a man in bam bam bigelow are you ready to get started hell yes man i've been looking forward to this one all right scott charles bigelow was born september 1st 1961 in asbury park new jersey bigelow attended neptune high school in neptune township new jersey where he competed in scholastic wrestling after high school, he was trained professionally to wrestle at Larry Sharp's Monster Factory. After a stint in Continental and World Class, Bam Bam made his WWF debut in May of 1987. He would leave the WWF by July of 1988, before you arrived in 1990. But he headed to the NWA where you were at at the time. Was this the time when you first met the Beast from the East? Was it NWA? No, no, I... I, I vaguely remember him just because of that push uh, from being there. But, no, we didn't get to know. As I recall, when he came in that time, you know, he was sort of like quiet in the dressing room. And, no, we, we didn't we didn't become the close friends that we've become until much later. Well, you know, after this, it was as if you guys were running from each other. You went to the WWF. He didn't arrive back in the WWF till you had left for WCW in 1992. Then you were off to ECW, and by the time you made it back to the WWF, Bam Bam was on his way out. Um, his last WWE pay-per-view was your first pay-per-view as Dean Douglas. And from what I understand, his reason for leaving was heat with the click. Had you heard about his issues with the click or did, did he warn you at all? Or did you guys even speak in passing here? No, I, again, we, we knew each other. We weren't the friends that we would become yet. He didn't warn me, but I had heard those same stories. But remember when I was going in there in 95, I was still seeing Shawn Michaels and Scott Hall as my buddies. In Scott's case, from the NWA and WCW, and in Sean's case, from WWF in 1990. So I went in, you know, with with defenses and guard down. I, I didn't see it. Although that story, the story about the click, was sort of omnipresent in the dressing room. You know, it was sort of whispered here and there. It hadn't yet reared its ugly head as much as it would in a very short time. But when I went in there back in there in 95, you know, they hadn't yet, you know, we just heard the stories, you know, I'm, I'm sure you heard it uh, last week when uh, Brett had mentioned about them asking him to be the, you know, like the leader and part of it was denied by, by Kevin Nash. Uh, the one thing, and I, I, as soon as I watched the video from Brett, that was the first I'd ever heard that. My thought was it's true. And the reason being because I've never known Brett to be a bullshitter. Brett was always quiet, reserved, stayed to himself. I never knew Brett to be one to go out there and tell a story about anything. You know, so you could tell when I was there, by the time I'd gotten there and all the bullshit had started with the click, you know, there were camps that were setting out, but like, for instance, and I forget the name of it, there was a clique that had, like, Rikishi and, and uh, Godfather that were with Undertaker. 
you know, Brett sort of like just floating out there by himself being sort of quiet and flying under the radar. But yeah, you know, but when I went in there, Scott had, hadn't warned me, you know, we didn't know each other that well at the time other than to say hey to each other. So Bam Bam was just another wrestler basically at that point. <laughs> At that point, yes. Okay, before Bam Bam left the WWF, he got the opportunity to main event WrestleMania with famous football player Lawrence Taylor. In all the time that you and Bigelow spent together, he had to have told you a story about this. What uh, what did Bam Bam have to say about this main event match at WrestleMania 11 with Lawrence Taylor? Well, he, he was sort of, uh, you know, put it over. You know, to me, most of the time, he would say you know, that Lawrence worked hard, that it was very respectful. He didn't come in like the big star, you know, expecting everybody to bend over backwards for him. He came in there to, to work hard and, and do the best he could do. You know, Scott always, you know, spoke, I don't want to say glowingly, not that he ever said anything negative, but... You know, he, he always put Lawrence in, the, in a positive light when he spoke about him. Well, Bam Bam and yourself would find yourselves in ECW by 1996. Bigelow, in November of that year, would be fighting in his first MMA fight against Kimo Lepoldo. Um, rumor has it he was paid seventy-five dollars to $100,000 for this fight, which he lost. Afterwards, Bam Bam would claim the fight was a work and he was the world's highest paid jobber. Did you know anything about this or did Bam Bam ever speak about his uh, fight with Kimo? No, n- never spoke about it. What I do know is that Scott knew how to handle himself. Uh, and, you know, we all know how agile he was for a big guy. You know, so that wouldn't at all surprise me if that were the truth. But but Scott had never mentioned that to me and never spoke about it. No, wait, you said that Bam Bam knew how to handle himself. Does that mean that you've seen Bam Bam kick somebody's ass for real? Well, I, yeah. I, mean, you know, I saw Bam Bam, you know, a few times take that route. But I also saw times, you know, when... Without getting into specifics, because I, I don't want to, you know, bring any names up to it, but there was an there was an issue in the ECW dressing room at one point where somebody came to me and brought something up, said that there were guys in the dressing room that wanted to jump me. You know, I got along pretty well with the dressing room, as I recall. Uh, I'm sure somebody, you know, I'm sure a few people can probably tell some stories about me, but I got along pretty well with the dressing room, and so I went to Scott. And I said, hey, you know, there's, you know, so-and-so told me this. And, you know, Bam was over there, you know, putting his boots on. And it was a sight to see Bam Bam get dressed because he was so big. He didn't say a word. He didn't say who, who said that or what. He just stood up and pulled his tights up and walked towards the back door. And he said, let's fucking go. Bam Bam and I went out and, you know, it was supposed to be four or five guys that wanted to jump me. And we went out and stood in the parking lot for about 20 minutes. And, you know, so Scott was not one to back down from a fight if he was your friend. The the, the 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 phrase I always use is if he was your friend, and clearly we were, he'd he'd walk in front of bullets for you, you know. And and again, just as big and powerful as he was, he was a big, strong guy and agile. You know, he 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 wasn't one to run from from, from a, a challenge or a fight. Bam Bam was was you know would always have your back. So you can't tell us anybody who was trying to whip your ass. Who, I mean, who was trying to? Why were they trying to jump you? Irrelevant, you know, more just dressing room politics than anything else. But I knew as soon as I heard it was bullshit because uh, of the topic that that was at hand. And I knew that there weren't four or five guys. You know, let's face it, the ECW dressing was a pretty straightforward dressing room. You know, the men were men, right? If somebody had an issue with you, my experience in the the ECW dressing room was, let's face it, if New Jack had a problem with you, 
New Jack brought it to you. If Perry Saturn or Kaz had a problem with you, they brought it to you. They didn't go talk behind your back as it's so prevalent in, in the other companies that I've been in. There was an issue. And that I think that's part of the reason, like part of the quote-unquote secret sauce of ECW's success was that, you know, you got a lot of testosterone and a lot of egos squeezed into a dressing room. You're always going to have issues. Um, but in ECW, when those issues arose, somebody would come and pull you aside and say, hey, blah, blah, blah. What you know? Likewise, I did that with other people. And as a result, it, it usually got nipped in the bud because you, you dealt with it face-to-face, man-to-man, and, you know, rarely ever came to the point of having to have a fight because the guys, I think, by and large, respected each other. You know, I can attest to that New Jack thing, man. He almost killed me over a cheeseburger that didn't come on time one time. It was a bad situation. But uh, after Bam Bam's extremely <laughs> short MMA run, uh, which was one one match, he never fought MMA again, he returned to ECW in 1997, joining Chris Candido and yourself as a member of the Triple Threat, where his May 10th debut at Chapter 2, he was tagged up with you to face the Pitbulls. What are your memories of this match? Well, first of all, I was excited when Scott came in because, you know, A, he had been to WrestleMania, and he was one of those guys that, to me, like even then watching it, didn't seem to quite fit into that sports entertainment model. Uh, you know, I used to, like the, the outfit they had him wearing, you know, with you know shooting the fire out of his wrists and that kind of stuff, that, that wasn't Bam Bam Bigelow to me. The beast from the East was that big badass that would you know, walk in front of bullets for you. And, you know, so when he came in, I knew that AECW had a, a huge star walking in the door, and that did a couple things. It showed, it proved to me that we weren't just a fledgling company building stars out of unknowns. This was now a company that stars were coming to, so that was a big, big plus for us. And 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 Bam Bam Bigelow was was a pretty big name in the business. You know, you said having. You know, headlined one of the WrestleManias and, and, you know, his run in the business. By that time, Bam Bam was a household name to wrestling fans. For sure. So that we had him in our dressing room, that to me was a huge plus for ECW. Definitely. Were you sold on Bam Bam Bigelow as a triple threat member in the beginning? Because you, you started out with Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko, and now you have Chris Candido and Bam Bam Bigelow. But Bam Bam Bigelow, at this point, you guys aren't even close. You guys have basically just just now started to, to get close, correct? Yeah. So yeah, were you sold on him as a member of the triple threat? From the beginning. There, there was, and, and it really was the timing. There was an interim triple threat between Benoit Milenko and Candido and Bigelow. It was Candido and Brian Lee. And Brian, who I thought I thought was a, a good worker, you know, he, he could do a promo. He knew how to tell a story. He was a big bastard, uh, having played the, you know, the fake Undertaker, et cetera. Not to and, mention and I his liked awesome Brian. run in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, which I was a huge fan of as a kid. Yeah, yeah. And, and Brian's a hell of a character. You know, like he, he's easy to get along with and be around because he is such a just funny redneck type of guy. He, he disappeared out of no place. You know, like one week he was there, the next weekend he wasn't, and nobody really knew what happened to Brian Lee. And so right at that same time, we weren't sure if Brian was coming back to the, the next, you know, set of shows or, or wasn't. And when it was clear that he wasn't coming back, Bam Bam had just literally come into the company. And so not only did we get a, another great big guy, but one of the best big guys in the history of the business and a guy that's been to WrestleMania. So it, 
it, all of it just legitimized the triple threat, you know, made it the heel stable that I wanted it to be from the beginning. And, and it just worked. And, and that was really where our friendship started. You know, Scott and I were well aware of each other before ECW. Uh, it wasn't like we didn't know each other at all or, or, you know, avoided each other. But it was in once he joined that and, and came to ECW, you know, for, for anybody that didn't know Scott, Scott was an incredibly easy guy to get to know. He was a very outgoing person, although not quite as verbal or, uh, how do I put it? Like Chris, Chris Candido could walk in a room of strangers and win friends in two seconds. I don't mean Scott was that way. Scott was just, you know, he was the kind of guy that he said he was your friend. He was your friend. And in this business, where so many people double talk and smile and stab you in the back, you knew from the very beginning that if Scott Bigelow had a problem with you, he'd let you know. So he, he was very easy to get to know because of that. And we immediately hit it off. So when the decision was made to put Bigelow in the triple threat, whose decision was that? Was that yours, Paulie's? Who who made that, that call? Mine. I, I went to Paul. You know, As soon as we realized that Brian Lee wasn't coming back, I went to Paul and said, you know, hey, this is a no-brainer, right? I mean, we've got a guy that's been to WrestleMania, and it's not only going to elevate the triple threat, but it's going to give ECW that heel stable that I knew was critical to the success of ECW. Every major promotion I'd ever been to and any major promotion I'd ever watched always had that solid heel stable, whether it was the Four Horsemen or Humperdinck Stable or uh, Hot Stuff International. Every successful promotion had that rock solid heel stable and ecw didn't have that that was where the whole idea for the triple threat came in the first place bam bam just elevated it bigelow began a series of matches against spike dudley with the two exchanging victories including one at the hardcore heaven pay-per-view which bigelow won during the rivalry bigelow established himself as a dominant force in ecw carrying out feats of strength such as hurling dudley out of the ring and into the audience when this happened, was there any worry of a fan getting hurt in the process? Yeah, uh, you know, that, that, that's always, in anything we were doing, contrary to what it looks like, there was always, you know, the older generation, we were all taught safety first. And so the first time I saw Bam Bam do that, you can imagine my eyeballs about popped out of my head. But Spike was a, a pretty good performer in his own right, certainly knew how to take care of himself. And the thing about the ECW fans and, you know, when I, people hear me say that we had the most incredible fan base and they were fucking insane. That was one of the reasons. Like, you knew that if you threw a Spike Dudley to the audience, the audience was going to just move and let him just crash to the to the concrete floor. They were going to catch him because they thought they were part of the show. And, and Spike was damn good at taking care of himself. But, you know, in the whole context of what you're talking, keep in mind of where we are in the business. You know, we're looking back from 2019 to a period, you know, 90 six, seven. By this time, the industry had been treated to Rey Mysterio going up against Kevin Nash and WCW. And there was this uh, this penchant for matching up undersized guys to these mo monster guys. You know, most of those matches were pretty much what you'd expect them to be with some kind of a glib finish or cute little finish. Bam Bam went into those matches with Spike, not only wanting to make Spike, but make the match believable. I think Bam Bam did an incredible job of that. Like, you never went into, you, you know, you stand Spike Dudley next to Scott Bigelow. He's about six times larger, literally. You know, and you think, my God, this guy's going to get murdered. 
And yet you go back and you watch those matches, and every spot that Scott did with him made sense. It wasn't like Spike Dudley going in and test the strength of Big Bam Bam Bigelow and beating him. You, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous. Every the, every one of those spots that Scott did with Spike, and, and I don't mean to give you know Scott all the credit because Spike was certainly holding his own in the ring and, and executing his stuff, but they were it was believable. It looked, you know, it's the old Bill Watts thing. If it were real. Well, if it were real, you could envision a small, much smaller guy like Spike doing these types of things to Bam Bam Bigelow and getting away with it and, you know, able to successfully do it. And then Bam Bam would at some point turn it around and just eat him up and, and toss him six rows back in the audience. That is, again, you know, according to Bill Watts, if it were real, that's sort of what it would look like. So everybody that was in that little group of fans there that caught spike were all legit fans there was no plants there was nobody there to catch him it was we hope the fans catch our guy i don't believe there i i, I can't say that there was or there wasn't i i don't know but you know i i've never heard that if there were plants and if there were plants you'd have to be pretty damn sure that scott bigelow was was that accurate to be able to throw because if you watch that all the fans are right there it's not like there's these four or five guys sitting in one place by themselves catching. So, you know, if you would be aiming for that and shortfall it or overthrow it, well, you'd be looking at a hell of a lawsuit, right? You know, that, right. you know you're sitting there with, with your kids and, you know, suddenly a, you know, a wrestler comes flying into your lap and squashes your kids. I don't think you'd be too happy. So I don't believe it was any, any – I'd never heard that until you just asked it. So I can't say definitively there wasn't. I'm just coming off the top of the dome. I've never heard that either. I just was thinking, you know, if I was going to try to pull that stunt off in 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 a indie company, I would definitely put some plants in there. I wouldn't want to just throw it at the audience and hope they catch my guy or hope that no one gets hurt. But I mean, it was a different time, like you said. Yeah, my my guess would be again, like I, I just said, but also that Scott wouldn't break kayfabe to do that. But that was the, that was the ECW fan base. You know, I mean, you knew going into that room that these people were here not just to be a spectator, but they were here to be a part of the show. I, I just can't imagine Scott breaking kayfabe to go out and tell a couple guys, "Hey, I'm going to be throwing this guy out here to so try to catch him." You know, so my my guess. And it's just a guess because, again, I don't have any inside information on it. But that would be a negatory that that, that didn't happen. Well, Spike wasn't the only one who Bam Bam demonstrated his power with. Taz also had some run-ins with the Beast from the East. They went through the ring and through the stage in different matches. These moments were so memorable. I always thought Taz and Bam Bam was a great clash of styles. Can you give us any insight on their feud? Yeah, it was phenomenal. It was one of the feuds that put ECW, really elevated ECW. You know, go back and look at the span of ECW. From the time we started, when Paul first took over the book and Eddie had walked, you know, there was this move, you know, you couldn't do it overnight. and We didn't have the resources to do it overnight. But for a span of time, months to a year, Paul would get rid of, say, like a Salvatore Blomo, nothing against Sal, but, you know, he wasn't going to fit the bill with where ECW was going. And then, you know, clear him out and bring in, or like the Blackhearts, and then bring in a Dean Malenko and Eddie Gilbert, or I mean, Eddie uh, Guerrero, a Rey Mysterio, a Conan. You know, so there was this constant moving out of the old and moving it and bringing in new talent that Paul knew would be able to deliver the vision that he had for ECW. And at that time, none of us really knew 
we were just sort of going week to week, show to show. And, you know, Paul was doing this slow, systematic switchover of the talent, you know. So going from that, then the, the, the period you're talking about, like when Taz and Bam Bam were going at it, you know, Taz had now really anchored his new character the, out of the Taz maniac into the, you know, Taz, the Taz, the suplex machine. You had Bam Bam Bigelow, this monster guy that everybody in wrestling worldwide knew. And so you knew it was going to be an epic battle. All right, I'm going to take this time to take a little pause to remind you of our sponsor and the official attorney for Franchised with Shane Douglas, and that is none other than Stephen P. New. Since 2001, drug companies dumped a billion opioid pills in West Virginia, causing over 3,000 overdose deaths and thousands of babies born addicted by no fault of their own. I'm attorney Stephen New. If you're the grandparent or guardian of a child born with neonatal abstinence syndrome, call me. I'll help you seek just compensation. Call the law offices of Stephen P. New at 1-844-BAD-PILLS before time runs out. Hello, Rich Quick here with another quick moment in Shane Douglas history. See, the date is January 19th, 2007, and the world has lost arguably the most athletic big man to ever step foot inside a wrestling ring. We, as wrestling fans, lost an icon, and Shane Douglas lost a brother. Bam, bam, big alone. Now, as the triple threat, Shane, along with Bam Bam and Chris Candido, formed the greatest faction in ECW history. Now, to me, they were the epitome of cool. The cool kids, if you will. (laughs) See, but there was a time when all three of these men had their own run in the WWF. And if you'll remember back in the day, the WWF had their own group of cool kids who were running the show. (laughs) Now, we all remember how they treated Shane. They did not like Bam Bam, and the feeling was mutual. And we all know what they did before Chris Candido and I got. Now, those cool kids weren't very cool, now were they? See, and that got me thinking, what is cool? Well, I can tell you what it's not. It's not picking on or bullying those you perceive to be beneath you. That's not cool. It's not the latest trends or fashion. I mean, have you looked in a mirror? We are wrestling fans, for Christ's sake. Nobody thinks we're cool. I mean, except for each other, right? So, find a group of like-minded people who will love and support you, who will push you every day to be the best you can be, and who will have your back no matter what. Well, Shane found that in Bang Bang. You know, I've heard it said that people come into our lives for a reason. Now, I don't know if I believe that's true, but Shane is who he is today because he knew you. They were truly brothers. They were never Bam Bam and Shane. They were Scott and Troy. And I think that is pretty damn cool. So until next time, this is Rich Quick with another quick moment in Shane Douglas history.
All good things must come to an end, and Bam Bam, under the guidance of Rick Rude, turned on the triple threat, which launched him into the main event status, feuding with you for the ECW world title. Whose idea is it to turn Bigelow on the triple threat? Paul's. Were you for it or against it? Neither. I mean, you know, it was what the boss called. I was excited about it because I knew I got to work with Bam Bam. At the time, it's it's hard to disassociate, like, my memory today from then. But I'm sure at that time I must have looked at it from the point of view of, like, hey, the tri- you know, we've done everything as a triple threat. We had amassed all the belt. We had had all the heat. You know, we had gotten a pretty good push. Now where do we go with this? And when Rick Root came in with the stated reason of being here to fuck with the franchise, that made perfect sense. You know, he kept throwing these challenges at me. Nobody saw. Remember, this is what wrestling no longer does. That holy shit, that oh my God moment we spoke about earlier. When Bam Bam came to that curtain, his music hit, the fans couldn't believe it. Wait, these guys are partners. They're part of the triple threat. And now they're going to be fighting each other. Nobody saw it coming. It was a hell of a swerve. And then on top of that, after, you know, I had a pretty good run at the world championship at that point. Nobody saw him beating me in 30 seconds and yet he did now in hindsight looking back you know to me and maybe it's just you know the the season you know having been in the business this long but to me i i didn't think the fans would buy it because it was so obvious what we were doing the pay-per-views in pittsburgh bam bam beats him for the belt a little more than a month before and we're going to pittsburgh well what's going to happen in pittsburgh It, it it seems so obvious but that's where Paul, I think, separated himself as a booker, that he, he knew that the fans in Pittsburgh were ripe and ready and that it would give an incredible pop when that belt was switched. Me, I, I, I wouldn't have seen it at that time. So whose idea was it to make Rick Rude a part of this? Was this something that he had an idea of this or, or your idea or Paul's? It was Paul's idea from the beginning you know, to bring him in. When he first came in, the very first day that Rude walked in, he came in wearing a long trench coat and a, motor, a full-faced motorcycle helmet, and none of us knew who he was. I, I went up, sort of like tongue-in-cheek, like, okay, you know, Paul, who is this? And he said, well, you know him, but, you know, never in a million years thinking Rick Root is here now because Rick was one of the big, big stars in wrestling at that point. Right. And it was, it was probably a couple of weeks before I realized, before I came to know who it was. Paul really came faved the hell out of that to the dressing room and didn't want it leaking out. You know, where remember, Rick used to cut the music and the franchise cut the fucking music. An obvious take on Rick Rude's run. I think Paul saw obvious connections between the characters. One cut the music, the other one cut the fucking music. You know, Rick was a phenomenal heel from that just a few years before and, you know, and world renowned in the industry. And who better to come in and articulate on the guy who's now claiming to be the best in the business and in that same sort of vein as Rick Rude, who better to come in and quote-unquote fuck with the franchise than Rick Rude? It was what every promoter and every booker and wrestling hopes for to get handed those kind of presents. You know, you have these characters that I get to play with, to mold and create storylines off of and paul clearly had that you know none of us knew that rick rude was coming in until after he was there you know to put him out there with that stated goal of fucking with the franchise and if you recall the storyline became sort of rick is gonna is there to to help elevate me help make me even better 
And so he's going to throw these challenges at me to make the franchise even better. And then through the curtain walks Bam Bam Bigelow. From a booking standpoint, it's booking gold. I'm pretty sure that right now, any of the, you know, Billy Corgans or Tony Cons and Cody Rhodes, anybody at TNA would love to be handed those kind of gifts. You know, magic in a bottle, somebody, but somebody like Paul had to envision it and then make it happen. What type of mind frame was Root in here? I know that uh, at this time he felt like he could wrestle, but was still deep in debt to the Lords of London if he ever wrestled again. Where was he at mentally? Well, you know, I'd known Rick for quite a, since 1990 at that point. Sadly, you know, some of the demons that finally, you know, got Rick, you know, the drugs and, and things, some of that was rearing its head. But, you know, Rick was one of those guys that when you put him in front of a camera, you know, he could sort of go on autopilot. You know, it was amazing. But there were a few instances of things that happened that led me to believe that there was something more at work. I didn't at the time know drugs, but there was something off about Rick. Uh, there was an incident that happened at the uh, C, uh, Trenton, New Jersey, it was C, CYO or another building. I had worked with the pit bull at that point probably 40 or 50 times and always had great matches with him, uh, pit bull number two. On this particular night, I'd given him a couple spots and... 15, 20 minutes later, he came back and said, I, I, I don't know if I want to do those spots. Man. I think they make me look stupid. And I explained out the psychology and the reasoning of the spot, and he left. And 10 or 15 minutes later, comes back and sort of voices the same opinion. And this went on for probably, I don't know, two or three or four times. And finally, the last time I followed him, as he walked back to his dressing room, I followed him. And he went in and closed the door, and I could hear Rick Rude talking to him, telling him that, the spot that I was going to, what the spot, I remember the spot vividly. What the spot was is I wanted him to be beating the shit out of me. I'd go to slide through his legs. The first time I'd do it, slide through his legs, leg sweep him, take him down, and sort of surf on his back a little bit. And then at some point later, he catches me trying to do the same thing, chokes me, pulls me up into a choke slam overhead, and you know, does the slam with me and then picks me up and presses me out to Bam Bam and Chris who were at ringside. And I tried to explain to him that, you know, the franchise, his mouth right checks his, his ass can't cash. He's a pretty damn good wrestler. He may not be as great as he thinks he is. So the franchise isn't a turtle on his back. The franchise knows his way around the ring. And so I explained the psychology of this spot being, you know, the franchise is using that acumen to make himself look good and sort of embarrass you. But when the time comes... You catch me and make me pay for it. It's sort of like that fly that bothers you for half an hour before you finally splat his ass. Right. And like I said, the last time I followed him back and I hear Rick telling him that the spot makes him look stupid. Well, that night we went out to eat. That was in uh, Trenton. And that night we went out to eat. You know, Rick was there and I, I went to Rick and I said, uh, there's something going on that I need to know. And, you know, he, he, you know, Rick was a pretty direct person. And he said, yeah, he said, you know, you're a shitty heel. And, you know, so we, we had that kind of a discussion and relationship. In hindsight, what I think was going on was Rick was a phenomenal performer who could no longer perform. Right. For a litany of reasons. The neck, the Lloyds of London issue, and all those things coming to a head. And now he's forced to be a spectator watching. Because of the similarities in our characters, made it a point to be able to say that, Okay, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong, you're doing this, that, and the other thing wrong, and I'm going to point it out. What Rick hadn't realized at that point is the, the industry had changed, by and large, because of ECW. 
And, you know, I had a pretty good finger on the pulse of what ECW fans liked and didn't like, what they bought and didn't buy. And I think Rick was still going off of the WWF model from previous. And I don't want it to sound like I'm burying Rick because I have all the respect in the world for him. But at this time, I, I think that was more the drugs talking and the performer in Rick talking. Rick wanted to be in the ring. And God, how I'd have loved to have had him in the ring. But he, he just couldn't at that point do that. And couldn't ever actually do that again, unfortunately. I, I know that he really wanted to make a comeback. And as I've said on this show before, he's my favorite wrestler of all time. So I definitely wanted him to come back, but we never seen him wrestle again. And it was, it's kind of a kind of tragic. Oh, it is. For, for anybody that's listening, as I know a lot of younger people listen, for anybody that's listening that hasn't really taken the time to either watch Rick or encompass Rick's career, you need to go back and watch because Rick Rude was something special. He really and, was. Uh, he was a phenomenal heel. And, you know, I think sometimes it gets lost up in the, the character that Vince put on him, you know, with the, the hip swivel and the picking uh, the woman out of the audience and that kind of thing. But, you know, I've always been impressed, like I said earlier in the, in the show, and watching guys like Rick Rude that were so phenomenal at what they did. They could take even a silly gimmick that Vince would put on them and make it work, you know, and then go out and have, you know, just incredible match. You know, there was never a time that you watched Rick Rude that you didn't buy what he was selling. Well, soon after this, Bam Bam turns on Taz to rejoin the triple threat. In this feud, he would actually win the ECW title from Taz in his hometown of Asbury Park, New Jersey. Was it a big deal for Bigelow to win the belt here in his hometown, or was it just another night? No, no, big deal. Uh, Bam Bam was a huge fan uh, of New Jersey, and I think he was very appreciative of the fact that he had the following that he had and that he came from the same town as Bruce Springsteen and all those sorts of things. When we would go to uh, Asbury Park or any place near there, you know, Scott would make it a point to have a bunch of us over to the house to eat dinner, take us out to the hot spots around town, point out to us as we're driving through town. That's where Bruce Springsteen first played, and down here is where this happened and that happened. You could tell that Scott was very, very uh, appreciative of where he came from and, and loved that whole area. Had some hometown pride. Absolutely. Big time. So he would later lose the TV title to Rob Van Dam. This would end at uh, November to Remember 1998, where you, Bigelow, and Candido would lose to Taz, Sabu, and RVD in a six-man tag match that would be the end of Bigelow's run in ECW. What can you tell us about this match, and did you all know that this was Bam Bam's last match and he was headed to WCW? We knew he was leaving. I, I don't know if I rem remember at the time that he was leaving after that, but I do have vivid memories of the match. It was at UNO, University of New Orleans, and because of the time constraints, you see, ECW had always run on open time. So if you wanted to go out and do 20 minutes, do 20 minutes. If you want to do 40 minutes, whatever. You know, so it was, you didn't quite know if there was one match before yours, how long you had before you were up. But on that particular night, we had to work hard time because Paul had so much booked into the show. So we had set the match up to break it down according to the, the break-offs of the angle. So I was angled with Taz at the time. Scott was angled with, with Rob at the time. And, and Chris was angled with Sabu at the time. So Sabu and Chris had a segment. Bam Bam and Rob had a segment. And then Taz and I had a segment. You know, in that kind of an issue, doesn't matter what you set up in the dressing room. If you've got two minutes to execute your portion and we've got 
say, 20 minutes in the segment. You get one shot at the app, and if you fuck it up or something goes wrong, you don't just start over and take up another two minutes until you get it right. And that was exactly what happened. When Scott was in there with Rob, something went wrong, and so they started over and did the spot again, and it put time constraint on the rest of us. Like Now we had to all sort of squeeze in our stuff to try to get it to where we had to go. And the match just never hit a groove it, it, because of that. You know, they're, they're, you know, we were fighting the clock the whole the whole match because of that. I remember when I came back from the match, you know, New Orleans is hot to begin with, but with the TV lights and everything else, aside from the heat, I was really pissed off because I, I had envisioned this being like a, a five-star match. It had all the makings of that. Looked great on paper. And that, yeah, and when that happened, you know, the whole thing just went to shit, you know, and it went to shit for a very specific reason. I, it, it, other than, it was only because that spot got messed up and they had to redo it and wanted to redo it. You know, we're taught from a young age, you fuck a spot up, you move on. You don't go back and do it again. You know, so I came back, I was so hot that I went, came back, instead of going to the dressing room, I came back and walked down the hall the other way and I found a woman like that was doing the accounting in, in the office. And had air conditioning. So I went in and laid down on the floor for like 20, 30 minutes just to cool down physically and mentally. Because uh, the match really failed to live up to what it had to, the makings of in my book. I would agree with that. Bigelow then heads to WCW where they give him a no contest finish with Goldberg right out the gate. That's pretty rare at this time when Goldberg was basically running through any and everyone. Do you think they were considering a title run for Bam Bam here? I don't know if they were or weren't, but they should have been. You know, aside from what Scott had done in ECW, he brought all that, uh, you know, all that uh, history with them from WrestleMania and everything else. You know, and at the time, like you said, they were really pushing Bill hard and heavy. You know, so to do that from the beginning, it tells me that they had ideas to go in that direction. And I, I don't remember because I came in a, a while, a short while after that. The politics in WCW, as we've spoken about before, were what brought it to its end. A company of businessmen were watching wrestlers that were they thought were being overpaid, you know, were bitching and uh, about flights and this and that and the other thing. It was only a matter of time before those politics caught up and killed WCW, which they ultimately did. So I, my guess would be at the time, based on the finish they did with Goldberg, that they had big plans for Scott. But then there was this constant turnover of people, whoever was running the off time, and you know, there was this constant in through the outdoor, so to speak. He does later compete in a WCW world title tournament, but they have him lose to Norman Smiley in the first round. That's a real shitty thing to do to a guy who's got a no contest with Goldberg. Yeah, well, it shows you that the booking is up, it's down, it's in, it's out, it's black, it's white. You know, so you come in and you do that. Hey, what did that do for Goldberg, right? This guy comes in, the beast from the east comes in, you know, we have a no DQ, you know, know, finish that they had. And then you put him in a match with Norman Smiley, nothing against Norman. You know, he wasn't quite at that level. And no. so you, you could see this, this, and this would become a theme in ECW. You come in with a big splash, they make this big hurrah about whoever came in. Two weeks later, now you're having that kind of a match. Like Mike and Awesome it, and the Fat Chick Thriller? Yeah, you know, it, right. it, that kind of stuff. And, 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 you know, it's easy to look back now. As they say hindsight is always twenty twenty, but it's easy to look back now even with the passage of time, and just look at those matches on paper, and you can see that somebody was fucking up big time somewhere. 
So uh, Bam Bam sticks it out to the company is sold to the WWE. He did a lot here, winning the tag titles while in the triad with DDP and Canyon. Did you feel like the triad was like a triple threat knockoff? Yeah, well, not so much that it was a, a knockoff, but I think they saw that Bam Bam had been such a key player in the triple threat, and the triple threat obviously had made splash in the business, that they were trying to replicate that. Plus, you know, DDP uh, and, and Scott were very close. You know, I think that they were trying to definitely play off of that in some way. I don't know if it was so much a knockoff, because, you know, it was very different stylings. Clearly, there was a connection between a stable from ECW and what, you know, to me, just looking at it, it looks to me like somebody's saying, okay, well, let's look, what has Bigelow done in the past? Like, for instance, WWF, uh, when I went there. Okay, so he's been a teacher. Looking at my resume, he's been a teacher. Okay, let's make him a dean, the world's smartest man. That kind of, like, school, child, third-grade-level thinking isn't the kind of stuff that really en- enamors itself to fans. You know, the wrestling fans were pretty well-versed in Bam Bam Bigelow. At this time, they were pretty well-versed in, in Diamond Dallas Page. You know, the whole thing with, um, I'm trying to think of his gimmick, his work name at the time. Um, oh, Canyon. Uh, yeah, Canyon. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so, you know, they, they, you could see like somebody had the idea to pull these guys that are sort of like in three different directions together. Third grade booking. You know, it, you, you need to come up with more than that. Just of, okay, we've got three disparate guys here because none of those three were similar to the other. And we'll put them together and see what happens. Throw shit against the wall and see what sticks. Did you like Canyon? I, I was a pretty big fan of Canyon at this time. I yeah. thought he was really innovative. Yeah, Chris was a great guy. Really was a good, good guy, man. Yeah, it was one of those things when you hear what happened later, I, I was just shocked at. He was one of those guys that really loved the business, really worked hard, and never quite got the break I thought, think he was deserving of. Do you think he didn't get that break because he was gay? No, I, 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 I don't see that. You know, I mean, let's face it, our business, homosexuality and bisexuality was, was a thing that was sort of rampant in the business. Uh, okay, let me, so let me, I don't let me rephrase. Do you think it was because he was openly gay? Well, I, I don't know. I, I, again, I'd never heard that. Well, you know, he came out in a magazine. When he was working for the WWE, he came out as gay right. in a magazine, and he didn't pass it through anybody. And people, I've heard people say that that, that may be the reason why he ended up losing his job at the WWE. I mean, it was a different time when, you know, that kind of stuff wasn't necessarily frowned upon. And I, I feel like he kind of got the shaft, you know, no, no pun intended, for, you know, for, for that coming out process. Might have been. If so, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard as a reason because, again, in our business, you know, that, that was, you know, pretty rampant. Uh, but, again, the world – this is what I always talk about, like trying to look back to that time period and looking at it from 2019 because, you know, things have changed and a lot more is acceptable today. I don't know, but I do know that it happened close in you know, proximity to each other. If so, that'd be a shame because, you know, he certainly wasn't the first in the business, certainly won't be the last in the business, and it really makes no bearing. Like I said earlier, he was a guy that really loved the business and worked his ass off at the business and was a guy that worked hard to get along with everybody. And he was so, so good in the ring. I mean, so good in the yes, ring. Yes, I agree. I agree. All right, so Bigelow had run-ins with the Sandman, Raven, and some other ECW talent while in WCW, but the two of you never seemed to cross paths. Why was that? Seems like the, it would just make sense for the two of you to do something in WCW. Good question. I, the only thing I can guess is that there was a, there was and is 
I believe, a, uh, uh, I don't want to say a competition, but a, a dislike between Paul and, and Eric Bischoff. And I know when they brought me in, it was to, to be the flare angle. And why they never went down that path was beyond me because they never had any uh, near any, each other in any way. You know, and Scott, I think, had, at this point, had a lot going on in his personal life. Because I, I could see a difference in him when I got to WCW. I, like I had asked him, like about if he wanted to travel together. Because it, to me, it seemed like a no-brainer. We, you know, we traveled together everywhere in ECW, and now here we are, a very short time later in WCW. And uh, he didn't. He, he said he wanted to do his own thing, and he had his own car, and wanted to, you know. But it, I knew from after that that Scott was having a lot of personal issues going on at the time, and I think probably swayed his decision after wcw was sold bam bam was paid to stay home till 2002 then he returned to the indies xpw usa pro wrestling and american combat wrestling he wrestled his final match november 7th 2006 for acw did you keep in contact with him during this time yes as much as i could uh towards the end uh, like i said a second ago about scott you know having a lot of personal stuff going on I know that uh, his wife, Dana, served him with divorce papers the day after he'd gotten his last WCW check, then disappeared with the kids. And uh, Scott had just had a baby daughter within a year or so, year, year and a half of this. I mean, Richie, his daughter, Richie, was very, very young at the time. I'd, I'd found this out after the fact. I wasn't finding this out firsthand at the time. I found it out after the fact that Scott spent a fortune looking like tracking down where Dana went with the kids had her twice you know one but she the first time he had her where she was she disappeared before he could serve her the papers the second time uh, shortly before he like within a year year a little more than a year before he died found out where she was and served her with papers and she disappeared again I, I was constantly trying to play catch up at the time at one point, I had contacted the. I'd heard that he had a business up in the Poconos, and I called the police, the, the local police department, and they had gone by where the business was and said that it was closed. So I was doing this constant trying to catch up with Bam Bam to find out where he was, how he was doing, and uh, he was always on the move trying to track Dana down and the kids. Did you know he and, was considering uh, retirement at this time? Yes. So he'd already yeah, told you he, he was, was going to retire. He didn't tell me he was going to retire. He was telling me he was thinking about it. But what happened at the end of him, you know, two people can grow apart. God, we, we've all been through that, or most of us have. When you take somebody's kids from them and disappear, that's a that's a pretty nasty, underhanded thing to do. Nice. And, you know, we had spoken earlier about, you know, about our affinity for our children. I'm not a religious person, but, you know, when I hear stuff like that, and I saw what it did to Scott, uh, who was a dear friend of mine, and I don't believe deserved that. Uh, it's the kind of thing that makes you hope that there's a warm spot for people later because uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a disgusting thing to do to somebody. Well, after he retired, he moved to Pennsylvania where he opened up the Bam Bam Bigelow Restaurant. Did you ever eat there? No, but that's the business I was talking about. The way I'd found out about that business, he didn't tell me. Uh, Paulie Bicow, one of the guys that traveled with us, had a couple – different little runs in the business, you know, WWF and, and, and places had told me about it. And that was where I got the idea to try to contact the local police to go up there and, because you know, Scott had changed his number and everything. They 
had told me that it was closed. And so there was this constant, I'd find out where he was, but by the time I'd get out, you know, reach out for him, he'd be gone and moved on to the next point. Well, now, after the restaurant closed, you and Bam Bam got reconnected and you guys moved to Florida together? No, not, no, didn't move. I, I didn't know Scott was in Florida until after. In fact, I, I think it was around the time he had the, the motorcycle accident. I had moved to Florida totally unbeknownst to Bam Bam was down there. And I think, as best I remember, I think I found out that Scott was in Florida from uh, Luna. I was on an independent show in Tampa, and she had mentioned that Scott was in Florida. Well, on the morning of January 19th, 2007, Bigelow was found dead in his home by his girlfriend at approximately 10 a.m. in Hudson, Florida. He was 45 years old. The autopsy results showed that Bigelow's death was due to multiple drugs found in his system, including toxic levels of cocaine and an anti-anxiety drug. Bigelow was also suffering from a heart problem at the time. Do you remember where you were when you found out Bam Bam had passed away? Yeah, I was at my house. I had gotten a phone call. Uh, who, who calls I think, you? I, I, so I just remember, I'm pretty sure it was, it was Polly Bacow and you know, told me what had happened. There was more to the story than, than just what, you know, what you'd read off. Scott, very, very few people knew this, but Bam Bam was a diabetic. I found that out only because I can still remember we were staying at the Marriott Hotel and on International Drive in Orlando. Bam were always stayed at a different hotel. Close by, but always stayed in a different hotel. Me, him, and Chris would travel together, and then like we'd get to whatever you know, get to, back to the town, and he would go to his own hotel. Scott also had a penchant for taking the phone off the hook. So if you tried to call the room, you know, he had no idea that the phone was, you know, you'd either get a busy signal or, you know, it would ring, and he had disconnected the phone from the wall. But he called me one night about one o'clock in the morning and said that he needed to go to the pharmacy. Would I take him? Because I had the car. So I ran over to pick him up and took him. And he came out with a great big bag of stuff, like a, not a grocery bag, but pretty, pretty big white bag. And he wanted to stop and get something to eat. We stopped at a Sonic and he loaded up the food. We walked into his room. And when we walked into the room, he set the bag, the pharmacy bag down on the bed and it spilled over. And I saw the insulin syringes and insulin and stuff. And very, very sheepishly, he looked at me and he said, please don't tell anybody. And I never did until after he died. I thought that's his personal business. If he wants to keep it to himself, that's up to him. And Paulie had told me that in the final year of his life, he had given up and had stopped taking his insulin and, you know, taking care of the, the, the diabetes. Wow. So that that was was a big part of his death as well. It's certainly contributory. You know, I, I think Bam Bam at the end, once uh, he had served the papers on Dana and she disappeared again, I think he had pretty much lost hope. At that point, I had heard that he had spent somewhere in the neighborhood of $200,000 trying to locate his kids and uh, and his ex-wife. When that happened, I think he just sort of gave up. I had seen him at a show in Long Island, I don't know, six months before he died. And it was a very hot day. It was The building was uh, underneath uh, a, you know, a subway overpass. And we were all sort of hanging out. Uh, back under the the overpass to try to beat the heat and i looked down the street and i saw scott walking towards the building and you could just tell by the his stature by the way he was carrying himself that he was just a broken man his shoulders were slumped and he was he wasn't carrying his bag he was dragging it on the ground behind him and he walked 
came up closer. I thought he was going to say hello to me, and he came, walked closer and closer and kept looking down at the ground and went to walk past me. And I said, is that any way to, to treat a brother? And he looked up at me and he went, oh, hey, Troy. And he kept walking. I knew something was wrong, so I followed him into the dressing room. And I watched him, like, just drop his, like, let his bag go. And he took a chair and he put a chair up against the wall and he sat down and put his head against the wall. And I walked up and I said, Scott, anything you want to talk about? And he just shook his head no. And I tried to talk to him. He said, I don't want to talk to you. He was just completely deflated. And it was heartbreaking to see. Well, not to end this uh, on a on a dark note, I'd like to uh, maybe talk about something a little bit more lighthearted. When you and uh, you and Bigelow were going to Sonic, I'm sure you guys have ate a bunch of meals together. What does uh, what did the typical meal of Bam Bam Bigelow look like? <laughs> Everything he wants. <laughs> he had he had gotten a bag there at Sonic that was on par with size of, of what he had gotten at the pharmacy. You know, a, you know, fifteen eighteen inch bag. And when he set those down on the bed, that's what made the, the, the bag fall over with the, the syringes and things in it. He had, you know, Scott could eat a prodigious amount of food. As you can imagine, a 400-plus pound guy w- would eat. But, you know, that said, in recollecting, you know, looking back on it, it wasn't like Scott was calling you four or five times a day to go to some beat. It was like, like typically one time a day, you know, he'd stop and get something and eat. And when he would eat, he'd, he'd, he'd eat to fill himself up. Wow, he was on my diet. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I had a professional wrestler's diet and didn't even know it. Okay, well, uh, I got one more for you. What is your very best memory with Bam Bam? I think the uh, the main event at the November to Remember 97. To me, I, there was so much riding on that match. It was the, 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 a lot of first for ECW. The first 5,000-plus venue we'd, held, we'd run, filled out for a pay-per-view. It was the first six-figure live gate that we had. And I knew there was a lot riding on it. Plus, I'm in front of my hometown. My family's there. My friends are there. My neighbors are there. So there was a lot riding on this. And I was so thrilled to have that match, that pivotal match in my career with Bam Bam Bigelow. Uh, we had used as the template Ric Flair, Vader uh, in Charlotte. That was the template for the match. And Bam Bam lived up to that. You go back and you watch that match and you see a, 400 and I think 25, 30 pound guy at that point who had slimmed down to that. The building, when you're watching it, what you can't tell is how hot the building was. Back then, before the high def cameras we have today, you had to light the place up like the, the surface of the sun to be able to televise it. So we had the four light stanchions with probably a million watts of lights lighting the place up. Plus, we had 5,000 plus people in the building. No air conditioning, no ventilation in the building. So the building was extremely hot, even though it was a November night. The building was about 114 degrees. And when you get up in the ring, your head's about 10 feet in the air. So you can imagine how hot it was up that high. The the heat was just hanging in the air. And you go back and you watch that match, and I'm realizing I'm 253 at the time. I'm no small guy. He throws me around like a rag doll for 15 minutes, and at about the 15-minute mark, he presses me over his head and throws me like he did uh, Spike Dudley. Goes over and leans on the top rope and looks right into the hard camera, and he's breathing like he just walked up a set of stairs, not sweating. I remember the first time I watched that match back because it was such a physical match, Uh, but I went back and I watched that match, and I was astounded that a 400-pound, 400-plus-pound guy could exhibit that kind of strength 
Because at that point, I, it was all him. He was doing everything in the match. Not be blown sky high in that heat. It was amazing to me. Okay, a lot. I got one more. One more for you. <laughs> okay. Tell us one of those fight stories. The best the best fight story you ever seen of Bam Bam kicking somebody's ass for real. Give us I want I want something that, that we don't know about. There was a a time outside of the ECW arena. Uh Tammy had come to the arena. She wasn't working that night and she had brought Johnny Candido with her. Johnny was probably twelve or thirteen at the time. A boy. Chris had walked her out to the car. Was out there for quite a while. There was a bar on the second floor. Uh, right next, connected in the same building as ECW, but, you know, it was a different building, but, you know, connected by you know, the facade of the building. And somebody came in and said that some guys out of the bar had surrounded Chris. Well, Scott and I took off out the door. I had had the elbow surgery at the time, so I'm in that brace. Uh, we went through the door. I was right behind Scott. Scott didn't go out and say, hey, what's going on, or ask any questions. Scott went through that door and just started throwing that big ham hawk around just leveling dudes and that that just it was like shaking up a hornet's nest because people started pouring out of the bar now the ecw arena dressing room empties out so there's like a full-blown riot going on right out in front of the ecw arena and scott was just haymaking guys just throwing that big roundhouses and just clobbering guys you know he was like a, a hot knife through butter brother he was you know you that was a pretty easygoing guy, but if he got pissed off like that and knew he had to start throwing, he didn't do it to play. Who wins in a fight, Bam Bam Bigelow or Ming? <laughs> it wouldn't be a fight. <laughs> Bam Bam. It took a lot to get Bam Bam moved to, to, to get pissed off enough to fight. But if you got him that pissed off to fight, you'd rather have a tank in front of you. So you're saying Bam Bam could kick Ming's ass? Oh, Ming. I thought you said me. No, Ming. <laughs> I said Ming. <laughs> yeah. Haku, that that look, that would be a hell of a fight. But everybody's heard me tell the the stories, long stories about Ming. That'd be one hell of a fight. <laughs> so you you can't give us a winner. It's, yeah, I love Scott. So I, I, out of my love for Scott and respect for Scott, I won't I won't go there. <laughs> Okay. Well, I think you pretty much answered it anyway. All right. Well, we've had a great show today. We've learned about Bam Bam Bigelow. We've went through, uh, went through the entire career and the legacy of the beast from the East. And, and here we are back at the end of another episode of franchise with Shane Douglas. And you know what we're doing next week? What's that? Interrogate the franchise part two. That means that everyone that's been sending in the questions nonstop, which I've gotten nonstop since the first interrogate the franchise. I literally have over a thousand questions to go through, which I'm going to do in the next week so that we can, uh, we can put out, out the new episode of franchise with Shane Douglas interrogate the franchise part two. Going to force me to, to scratch those cobwebs off the brain cells. Yeah. And I've told them no questions about your dick this time. <laughs> uh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. I think we did okay the first time, so looking forward to it. Yeah, it was a fun show. It was actually our most downloaded show, so we're going to try it again, see if we can get everybody's question on there. I know we're not going to get everybody's question on there. I don't even know why I'm teasing that, but I'm going to get as many of the questions that I can possibly get on the show on the next episode when we do interrogate the franchise, which will be episode 10. We've been doing this for 10 weeks now, Shane. Coming up on the Baker's Dozen.
Yeah, we're coming up on it right right real soon. And uh, we want to make sure to remind you to uh, check out our sponsor, Stephen P. New. Also, uh, get your wrestling news from Wrestling Inc. We love Wrestling Inc. That's where all the great news comes from. And you can actually check out news about uh, the franchise Shane Douglas and his awesome podcast, Franchised with Shane Douglas, on Wrestling Inc. Absolutely. It's, uh, are we, are we going to talk about the uh, contest at all? Um, actually, we're going to talk about the contest a lot next week. Next week, we're dropping another big announcement about the contest. And uh, the best thing I can tell the franchisees to do is to go to ShaneDouglas.com and subscribe to the newsletter. The newsletter will be launching soon, and the people who are subscribed to the newsletter are going to get the first pieces of information about the contest as they come out. If you haven't heard before, I'm not sure what we're talking about. I assure you this is a contest you're going to want to listen to and check out because it's a pretty fucking cool contest. It really is. We are going to be flying a fan, a franchisee, and his friend. We're going to be flying you on Franchised Airlines, a private jet with the franchise, to a location where the franchise, Stephen P. New, our lawyer and sponsor, is going to be with us as well. Hopefully, me... Uh, we're not 100% sure yet if I'm going to be a part of this or not, but I hope hope <laughs> that I am. And you guys are all going to go out to dinner, and then you are, are going to go to an AEW show, a live AEW show, and it's going to be the biggest contest in podcast history. It's going to be great. Absolutely, and you'll get to hear the franchise's feedback live and in living color as the show's going on. And He might even give you some of this popcorn. Into the franchise's brain. You might even give him some of your popcorn. Hey, popcorn. I don't eat popcorn. You don't eat popcorn? You're not a popcorn guy? No, I love popcorn, but uh, no, no. It's, uh, hey, look, we'll, we'll certainly have some good snacks there and some good food and won't force anybody else to do the keto diet that doesn't want to do it. Are you Are you doing keto? I'm a keto guy, brother. Is it working for you? Yeah, yeah. It's, now, I've, I've been in the last couple, last, I'd say, a month and a half, slid a little bit off of it, but I'm getting ready to make another run here. I'm down... Probably about 26 pounds and, and looking to get down to like 215, 220 for See, the first time since high school. I lost 15 pounds on keto and then like I got really sick of the food and took a break and then gained all 15 back with the quickness. And now I'm about to take another run and see if I can actually get under 300 pounds. I'm, I'm almost Bam, Bam Bam Bigelow style. You know, I'm, I'm 323. Dude, honestly, you go out and you get yourself. Uh, the whole thing about keto to me is giving yourself the prep time to do it right. And that's been my problem for the last couple of months. But if you do that, and, and you know, they've got some, God, I've got about 10 books on keto stuff, different diets and, you know, different recipes and things. And, you know, if you go go into it and you get some, get some of those cookbooks and stuff, honestly, one of the, the biggest things that to me about the keto diet is it's the first time I've ever done anything like this. And I haven't been hungry or, you know, doing without or depriving myself if anything i feel like i'm eating more food now than i've ever eaten wow yeah i need to get your recipes obviously you need to send some of those over to me before we get out of here i want to uh i want to mention another sponsor of uh, of shane a franchise with shane douglas is the royal ramble on facebook i don't know if you've ever heard of the royal ramble but the royal ramble is a talk show that uh, discusses weekly events in wrestling has a, a weekly topic and all that good stuff and you can actually watch the royal ramble on facebook and you know who is on the royal ramble every single week who's that me you yes 
I am on the Royal Ramble every single week, and you can check it out on Thursday nights at facebook.com forward slash Royal Ramble 304. 304 is the area code of West Virginia. Well, one of the two area codes in West Virginia, and I was actually originally from West Virginia. Of course, I'm located in Florida now, but I still do the Royal Ramble 304, and you can check it out on Facebook. It's uh, it's Facebook Live every week on Thursdays. You should uh, you should be a guest on the show one week. I like you have time for stuff like that. Yeah, I was going to say, but but what you're saying is that you've been moonlighting, and so we should be able to cut your pay down accordingly here at Franchise. You're going to cut my pay again? Man. Okay. Okay, Vince. I guess I'll I'll go along with it. Well, you know, pal, things here in WWE, we, we have gravity that falls up and we believe in I never say I or me. <laughs> right. All right, Shane. Well, we've put together another great show for the franchisees, and it will come late, but it will be there, and you will get to listen to it first thing on a Wednesday morning instead of Tuesday morning. But uh, that's the time when hopefully you're listening to it, because hopefully you listen to it as soon as it comes out. We need more listeners. Make sure you share our Facebook page. Make sure that you join the franchisee group on Facebook. Make sure you retweet our tweets. Make sure you follow us on Instagram. We are everywhere, and we want to be everywhere with you so make sure you link up with us and share it with your friends because a lot of people are talking about franchised with shane douglas go ahead shane take us out of here and i say for this episode we do what i always do on the road we introduce bam bam bigelow is only the way the franchise can do weighing 484 and three quarter pounds from asbury park new jersey he is the best big man in the history of this business Ladies and gentlemen at Franchise, I give to you the beast from the East, Mr. Bam Bam Bigelow. (laughs) And you've just had your ass franchised. (laughs) When Ravishing Rick Rude paraded to the ring, Bam Bam Bigelow, one third of the triple threat as my surprise opponent, I was shocked because I never thought one of the family would stab me in the back. I was wrong. And Bam Bam Bigelow, you took the opportunity and you made yourself improve to the world what you always knew deep inside your head, that you had what it takes to be the world's heavyweight champion. I applaud you for that. So ready to go, cause I'm running in the face of a 